Hello, everybody. My name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to the Things Observed podcast. And I hate to say it, folks, but the Operation Paperclip scientist may have finally gotten to me. I have been doing a lot of work outside in the garden, doing some compost work recently, and I discovered when I went to the restroom today that attached to the family jewels was a certain arachnid, an eight-legged creature known as a tick. I'm not sure what kind of tick, and I don't know if this tick was carrying any kind of, you know, uh, Fort Detrick research you know, illnesses inside of it, but who knows, they may have gotten me after doing all the research that I did for the Lyme's disease episode, which you guys can go check that back out if you want to listen to that one, if you haven't already listened to it, I don't know, I don't rest so easy with ticks anymore, it was not a pleasure to find one on me, much less attached to such an intimate area. But what I will say is that that tick had hitchhiked all the way with me to church this morning, most likely. Um, So, I don't know. At least maybe he has been proselytized a little bit, too. Perhaps he has accepted, um, you know, I don't know. I don't want to get sacrilegious with it. It's too early in the episode to do that. Not that I would do it later on in an episode anyways. But anyways, maybe that tick learned a little bit about virtue and doing the right thing when he attended church with me today. One can only hope. But anyways, we are not here to talk about ticks. You know, if something does happen, I don't know how I'm going to be able to find a bullseye. Anyways, I don't want to get too vulgar either. But you are listening to the Things Observed podcast. I am your host, Luke Marshall, and the host to a tick as of this morning, and all I have to say is we're not here to talk about ticks. We're here to do our next installment on the Scorzini series, which in the last episode I said that I was going to try to make the next one the last episode in the Scorzini series, but there will actually probably be more like two more episodes including this one in the Scorzini's um, series episode then I'll try and get some more interviews and stuff like that and then we'll also get into not only Scorzini but some other shady people just kind of the Alborelli Jr. Ralph Gannis um, also talk about May Brussels theories when it comes to the JFK assassination so we'll be back in JFK land before too long not that we haven't already talked a little bit about that touched on it a little bit in this series you know in the last episode we talked about Mary Pinchot Mayer and her connections to James Angleton and and some other stuff but anyways we are going to continue talking about Otto Scorzini in this episode and in the first episode which um you know you'll be probably able to follow along if you haven't listened to the rest of the series with just this episode but it might be instructive to go back and listen to some of the previous episodes but we talked about Otto Scorzini and his Nazi years and then we talked about him getting sent up to Camp Arnold and then talking with people in the Western intelligence agencies like specifically the CIA with people such as William Wild Bill Donovan and others. So 
you know, we've talked a little bit about Squizzini in that, and then in the episodes following, we got into his relationships with French intelligence, the Compass Rose Stay Behind Networks, which was kind of like a proto-Gladio. We've talked about all kinds of other weird connections that Otto Squizzini had his time in France up until his time in Spain, and then he would set up his headquarters in Spain, and that is also would be the headquarters of the World Commerce Corporation, which Scorzini was very, very intimately involved with, and that could be a host of, of episodes on itself, but Scorzini would be operating out of Spain, and he would have weird t- connections to the Sofindus Network, which was all about recovering Nazi gold and other loot and stuff like that, which we've talked a lot about access loot and its recover- recovery by Western intelligence agencies on our Blood and Gold series, where we dive, take a deep dive into mainly the book by the Seagraves Gold Warriors. But anyways, those are some of the things, definitely not all the things that we've talked about in the previous Scorzini episodes. But anyways, let's do a little bit talking about Scorzini. And this is going to be about him attempting to rescue Colonel Piper. So to say that Scorzini had been cozy with Western intelligence would be an understatement, as those of you who have listened to the other episodes will have known by this point. I mean, he was let out of being held by Western intelligence. He was very quickly brought into the fold. You know, right after World War II, we were starting to already gear up into all of this Cold War nonsense. And the American and the British intelligence agencies had no qualms with working with fascist and literal Nazis such as Otto Skorzeny in order to try and thwart the Red Menace. And so, you know, we've already pointed to much of the facts and circumstantial evidence that highlights how deep this relationship was between groups like the CIA and Skorzeny. Eventually, however, Skorzeny would have a bone to pick with the West, and this bone to pick was over the arrest of the SS Colonel Joachim Piper. And so, Piper would specifically be arrested for the Malmedy Massacre, which was a um, a slaughter of American POWs, one of the many Nazi war crimes that took place during World War II. Um, this specific one was at the Battle of the Bulge, a rather famous battle. 84 Americans who surrendered to the Kampfgruppe Piper, which, you know, I am not a, I do not have a fluent tongue in German, so forgive me for any mispronunciations. Um, I, I know, and I've gotten some DMs that I have not pronounced things properly, but spelling sounds a lot like witchcraft casting spells, and so at Things Observed, we don't fret over if we do not say and pronounce the names of our enemies well. So, anyhow, that is our very unscientific stance, but hey, I am uh, not Bill Nye the science guy. I'm not Neil deGrasse Tyson. You're going to have to go somewhere else if you want that, folks. But anyways, so these 84 Americans would surrender to the Kampfgruppe Piper, and these POWs were grouped together and fired at with machine guns, and all the survivors would, you know, have a bullet fired to their heads, and um, it has been debated, you know, whether or not Piper was the one to give the orders to execute the American POWs, 
but regardless if he's the one that the direct order came from, it is hard to dispute that Piper engendered um, what can at best be called a callous indifference to prisoners of war amongst his unit. And so no matter which way you slice it, he bore some, if not the bulk or all of the responsibility. So anyways, this is kind of what would get Piper the, uh, the ire of the Americans. And so he would be placed on trial for the massacre and would be denied. Um, he would deny giving the order, but he would take responsibility for the actions of his unit. He'd also claim that their actions were honorable, <laughs> which isn't exactly the words of a contrite man, at least if you were to ask my opinion. But despite being able to be proven guilty, of you know issuing the order he was scheduled to meet the hangman on july 16th 1946 so if you ask me why not just have it 12 days earlier you know you could make it a festive fourth of july celebration um that'd be a great way to celebrate america but that is not what would be done it would be scheduled for the 12th and initially many others would be sentenced to the um since to death for the massacre but those numbers would continue to wane and become smaller and smaller until the number was eventually brought down to 12 people and then once more again to six people whose um um, so six of those 12 people would be commuted to life imprisonment. And, you know, the other six were set to go to the gallows. Um, so Piper was one of these men who was still sentenced to death, along with these five other Nazis who were um, partook in the Malmedy massacre. And Skorzeny had fought alongside Piper during the Battle of the Bulge, which we talked a little bit about Skorzeny's role in the Battle of the Bulge in our first episode, along with a lot of his other commando operations. So go check that out if you want a more in-depth look into his life. But there's also plenty of other good informative books about Skorzeny. I've been relying heavily on Ralph Gannis's book, um, The Skorzeny Papers. He um, his book is special because he got the papers of Skorzeny that were put up to auction. He bought them. He said that he's eventually going to try and get them into, you know, some sort of archive or something to where everybody can peruse these papers for themselves. But he has kind of some special access to some stuff that other people don't because of these papers. But there's also other books like um, I believe one's called The Devil's Disciple, which I haven't read in total. I've just read bits and pieces of it, but it's got some good information. Um, pretty much anything that is not Scorzini's own memoirs, you can get some semblance of the truth in when it comes to Otto Scorzini. But anyways, I am going on a tangent. But anyways, if you want just a a less in-depth, but a more in-depth view about Skorzeny's Nazi years. You can just go check out the first episode in this series. So anyways, you know, Piper and Skorzeny had worked along with each other during the Battle of the Bulge, and Skorzeny saw this as an affront to an honorable man, along with, you know, the other German officers who were all play paying close, to, uh, close attention to this proceedings. You know, so they were all butthurt that they're, you know... Uh, mass murdering buddy was going to be sentenced to death um you know so i guess that the nazi brotherhood was still strong despite them you know 
surrendering during the war. But anyway, war mocked General Heinz Guderian and Skorzeny would begin to petition for the release of Colonel Piper, and Guderian would in fact mention a letter he had sent to the High Chancellor of Germany, who we had just mentioned in the last episode, John J. McCloy. I mean, he would have a hand in helping out a lot of other Nazis, you know, whether we're talking about the Krupp, you know, weapons and <laughs> manufacturing family who helped out the Nazi cause, or, I mean, the, you know, the list goes on, uh, Klaus Barbie and other stuff. McCloy would also go on to work with the World Bank. He would be kind of close to the Harrimans and the Rockefellers and all these other people. McCloy was a bad dude, but, you know, we also briefly mentioned in the last episode that uh, John J. McCloy did not exactly buy wholesale the official story of the JFK assassination, which in all of my research on John J. McCloy, not that I'm the McCloy expert, that's really the only thing that you could say is... Uh, approaching um laudable about mccloy but i don't even know if you would call it that but anyways um according to him mccloy was powerless to do anything and that is uh according to uh heinz Guderian, um was powerless to do anything which one can only wonder if that insinuates that mccloy would have done something for the death row nazi if only he could but anyways it seems like he was powerless to help out colonel Piper, and this is one of the people who would be petitioned by, uh, you know, people like Hines in order to let Piper go. And Scorzini was very much involved with these efforts, too. So in typical Scorzini fashion, the man of action, because that is kind of what Scorzini um, at least likes to portray himself as, uh, as a man of action, but he was also kind of a big ideas guy, and he'd have people like Elza Scorzini who would actually help him with the more um, on the ground, you know, uh, the, the actual helping out with the carrying to fruition of these plans. But he came up with a plan, which we will once again refer to Gannis, to illustrate his first move against those in the West who try and see to it that the Nazi in question met justice. But, you know, Scorzini had different plans in mind. So this is Ralph Gannis in the Scorzini papers, and he writes, The Piper issue was one of deadly resolve for Scorzini, and he used the news media to broadcast a warning to his clandestine partners in the CIA. On July 11th, 1951, a CIA internal memo concerning a news report on Scorzini coming out of Argentina was sent by the chief of the contact division, whose identity was redacted, to a Mr. Chauncey Stillman, located at room 1610 Building L. That building was the office headquarters for William K. Harvey, head of Staff C. Located in Washington, D.C., at the old CIA complex, temporarily housed in a run-down government building near the Capitol Reflecting Pool, it is nonetheless remembered fondly by those who roamed its dank halls. The contact division chief started the memo by stating that his division had acquired certain information which may be of interest to your office, obliquely at least. Here the writer verifies he knows that the information on Scorzini would be of interest to Harvey's staff, or at least somehow associated with it. As we know, that is exactly the case at the time Scorzini was working with the Office of Policy Coordinations through various cutouts, such as the Gellin Organization, the World Commerce Corporation, and French Intelligence, amongst others. Harvey, as head of counterintelligence, would have been monitoring reporting 
for Office of Policy Coordination Operations. The second and third paragraphs contain information that Scorzini had given to the Argentine press, some rather disturbing opinions. The report went on to say that Scorzini had delivered a warning to the Western Allies that if Colonel Piper was executed, we will never lift a finger again nor open our lips. If Piper dies, the Americans can be certain that he will not collaborate for an instant more. So, anyways, that is what Gannis has to um, elucidate about the matter. But anyways, basically, Scorzini is refusing to be cooperative with Western intelligence anymore if they are to go forward with the execution of Colonel Piper. And, you know, we can see William Harvey, who we talked about in the last episode, the pot-bellied man with a frog-like sounding voice, whatever that means, but that was used to describe him by someone who knew him, who is a madman in his own right. But anyways, so Gannis in his account of events goes on to say that according to Piper historian Danny S. Parker, Scorzini would even concoct a plan to try and liberate Piper. And so according to Parker, Piper's wife would actually pass along information to Piper about a supposed plan by Scorzini, and the plan involved uh, drugging these Polish guards who were, you know, guarding Piper, and apparently these Polish guards enjoyed, uh, guards enjoyed having a drink, and then apparently whoever was to carry out this plan had contacts to the hospital where Piper was being held for medical treatment, and the inside man would get Piper to safety of the safety of a getaway vehicle, after slipping a little something in the drinks of these Polish guards, which, I don't know, Polish guards, you could probably just put a banana pill on the ground or something like that, or some sort of obstacle in their way, and they'd probably be so clumsy as to stumble over it when they were trying to, you know, stop whoever, what, you know, I don't know. Anyways, uh, we're not going to be making any more Polish jokes. Not that there aren't more Polish jokes to be made, because there's always more Polish jokes to be made. All love to my Polish listeners. But while the plan never came to fruition, Piper would eventually be released in 1954. And so, I mean, you know, how much of this had to do with the petitioning of people like Heinz and someone like Scorzini, you know, who was involved with Western intelligence and, you know, did have the ear of people... Um, you know, like a William Harvey or something like that. Um, but anyways, 1954, this is also the same time period in which we would see Scorzini begin to make yet another connection to Dallas that will be instructive to our narrative, which, um, you know, we'll dive deeper into another episode or so when it comes to the assassination of JK, JFK. And, um, you know, I know the last name that probably any of y'all want to hear again is Gannis, but he does pinpoint the beginning of this confluence of characters that would end up giving rise to the JFK assassination plot beginning in 1952. So, you know, um, so in September of the year in question, the Spanish government would actually give some Dallas businessmen permission to begin oil exploration in the country, which, I mean, have you guys ever heard of oil drilling in Spain? I really haven't. But this is, you know, strange that they would be given this permit to begin drilling and exploration in the country because the country was not considered at the time a viable location for oil drilling. But Gannis' contention is that this was only a cover, much as had happened with the OSS in Spain during World War II, 
where they would give cover for the moving of large amounts of equipment that would help in the construction of underground tunnels and facilities by granting, you know, what else but a permit for oil exploration. So that's right. You guys all heard me, all of you tunnel heads out there, because I know that we have some tunnel heads who probably listen to this podcast. I know that I definitely have some tunnel heads in my uh, sphere of the Twitter realm. You know, so whether we're talking about McMartin preschool tunnels, Playboy Mansion tunnels, um, Blood and Gold, we talked a lot about tunnels in, in that series. You know, there's always a n- never trust a man with a tunnel. That's all I'll have to say. Although, maybe this says something a little bit about my character, but I could see tunnel tunnel making being a, a fun ho- hobby. Um, I don't know if it's true. This is totally off topic, but I one time saw a Reddit thread where it's this um, lady who's talking about her husband and how he lost all of his friends and how he's been spending more time drinking and working on, you know, it started off, he's big, you know, just digging this hole kind of aimlessly on their property and then it was turning into a tunnel and she was afraid it was going to collapse on him and she was concerned with his safety and mental well-being. So, I don't know. Maybe I will um, turn into a tunnel person before long. A a mole person by self-infliction. But anyways, um, so, <laughs> you know, we have this permit for oil exploration. And these permits would be given to the Dallas oil men by the same man who coordinated the Spanish government's involvement with the Sofindus network, which we talked a little bit in the previous episode. And we're talking about Spain there's a lot of Nazi stuff going on in Spain. Um, that's where, you know, Scorzini would have his pretty much lifelong headquarters after his French years. But anyways, the man that the Spanish government would, you know, um, who would coordinate between the Spanish government and the Dallas oil men um, was a man by Juan Antonio Suarez or Swanzes, excuse me. And, you know, this is the same man who coordinated Spanish government's involvement with the Sofindus network, which was, you know, um, its aim was to try and recover some of these, you know, the, the, the Nazi loot. So, in the Scorzini papers, Gannis gained access to at auction. It shows not only that Scorzini was involved with this oil deal brokered between Spain and Dallas Oil, and I'm saying oil deal in quotation marks, but that also Hajimar Schacht would not only be involved in the financial dealings in regard to this deal, but that he would actually greet the oil executives upon their arrival. And we have talked about Hajimar Schacht um, previously. It's the man who Ilza Scorzini claimed that she was related to when, you know, Scorzini met her as a countess. Um, but anyhow, uh, that's probably not actually true if we were to believe people like Gannis as well as H.P. Alberelli Jr. and some other, you know, um, Scorzini historians and what have you. Um, but not only that, um, Hajimar Schacht was a big financial guy when it came to the Third Reich, and he would actually work out of the office where Scorzini would receive his orders from during his Nazi years. So this supposed oil exploration venture was largely spearheaded by Dallas geological firm de Gaulier and McNaughton. And Gannis talks about a syndicate who would be involved in kickstarting these operations in Madrid and then mentions some of the men who Scorzini had dealings with. 
in regard to this operation, one of them being the president of the General American Oil Company, Judge Gordon Simpson, who happened to be the head of the committee that investigated Colonel Piper. It's so interesting how these people just keep popping up and popping up. I mean, I'm learning about all kinds of interesting new folks in this Scorzini research, but it's, you know, funny how they just will all have, you know, Scorzini just ties the thread between these people who have some sort of weird connection to just two seemingly disparate things that Scorzini also happens to be involved with. But um, another strange connection in the Scorzini saga, which seems to have an innumerable amount of shady connections, is this connection to Gordon Simpson. But there are also others involved with this oil venture, though, who had also, you know, they had connections to the Nuremberg trials and the CIA War Department attachment. And one of these men was the former OSS man, Jack Crichton, or Crichton. Um, and so Gannis points out the importance of these connections of Squirzini to oil dealings and the oil poor Spain with all of these intelligence guys linked into the Nuremberg trials. And he says, clearly the Texas oil connections to Squirzini mentioned above are extremely important given the profile of its participants and the fact that Squirzini was connected to CIA cover organizations. Add to this the earlier facts of Squirzini's business connections to Johannes Bernhardt, Victor Oswald, and others involved with Sofendis and the World Commerce Corporation, and the evidence becomes overwhelming. What has emerged is a clandestine network dedicated to covert action, including assassinations. And if I recall correctly, Victor Oswald was the person who was a um, Russian who would end up getting involved with, you know, CIA programs to look after immigre communities from Russia and the Ukraine and America and would kind of be Marina Oswald's handler after the events took place in Dallas and he would show up in Dallas right after the spot. I believe I remember that correct. I believe that was Victor Oswald. I did talk about Victor Oswald in the previous episode, but anyways, pretty sure that's the same guy. But anyways, Gannis then goes on to point out that this Dallas oil and Spain shenanigans just so happened to take place around the time that Eisenhower retired from his role as Supreme Commander of NATO, where he would have to approve of covert operations taking place in Europe, and he was known for turning the CIA into his, quote, own private presidential army. And this was in the words of Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who was uh, the famous Kennedy historian. Um, so, I mean, that's just kind of... Uh, interesting that he would say of Eisenhower that, you know, he took it, um, that he would turn it into his own, you know, private presidential army. But anyhow, um, let's just, you know, keep moving on with this. I was getting sidetracked. I was, uh, Googling Arthur Schlesinger Jr. to make sure I remembered him correct. And I believe that I do remember him correct. Um, he also wrote about Robert Kennedy and, uh, some some other people, just a historian. But anyhow, um, you know, and so the NATO officer who would have been in charge of these types of matters during the time of the dealing was Paul Rigardowski, who would go on to be close to none other than Lee Harvey Oswald. And so Rigardowski had actually been chosen for his position as special representative to Europe for oil production by the Dallas oilman Fred Anderson. So we have all these weird connections to Dallas Oil 
in this funny business that is going on in Spain, which seems like it's the cover for something else going on. We have this Judge Gordon, who's involved in the Colonel Piper stuff. We have Paul Rigardowski, who's connected to Lee Harvey Oswald. We've got Victor Oswald, you know. So we've got all these strange people with all these different connections. So anyhow, Scorzini would continue to do business with Western intelligence, with his headquarters in Madrid, with what Gannis describes as a CIA contact cover program in place, which involved Scorzini using military attaches in the Madrid embassy. And so the CIA would have basically constant tabs on Scorzini, assigning people to become his friends, and, you know, they would basically, you know, cozy up to him and Ilsa, and, you know, they were just keeping the agency in the loop in regards to the intel that they uncovered through their friendships. And so the task of keeping tabs on Scorzini would eventually be handed off to an Air Force intelligence officer after the CIA debriefed Major Bick, whose responsibility would be to take over the role of acting as a friend to learn more about Scorzini. And it just so happened that Frank Wisner's Office of Policy Coordination was under Air Force cover. And, you know, we've already discussed a distinct possibility that uh, Scorzini had been involved with the OPC. So we won't dive more into that there. But basically, a lot of the stuff that was going on with OPC I see especially their you know like p7 program or pb7 um one of those two i can't remember exactly seemed to be right up scorzini's um, alley we already talked about how e howard hunt the watergate burglar some but uh, some people believe you know his son um had said that he claimed on his deathbed to be involved with the jfk assassination if i remember correctly you know so anyways we talked about all that but he would basically say that this OPC branch would be involved with assassinations and all kinds of other corrupt business when it came into dealing with espionage. And we talked about the fact that, you know, um, the OPC maybe wasn't doing it directly, but that they basically outsourced assassinations. And that's where a guy like Otto Scorzini would come in, because that's basically what he made his living in, was being the guy that the intelligence agencies would outsource to do the dirty work. So anyways, I'm, I'm rambling once again, but during the period of time that the responsibility of keeping tabs on Scorzini shifted from the CIA to Air Force Intelligence, Major General Charles P. Cabell would arrive in Madrid. And Cabell was an interesting guy. He was a West Point grad who would have a colorful career, to say the least, before we arrive at how he factors into the Scorzini story. I'll just tell you a little bit more about his background. So after graduating from Rest Point, he would become a member of the U.S. Air Force Advisory Council before moving on to becoming a commander of a combat wing for the Air Force in Europe. And he would quickly assert himself as a powerful person, rising up the ranks, and he would even attend the famous Yalta Conference, you know, uh, concerning what would happen after World War II, and it was attended by Churchill, Stalin, Roosevelt, um, you know, so he he would go on after that to Cabell would work for the United Nations as the director of staff for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, which say that fa- five times fast. Um, and he would also work as a deputy director of the CIA. So no small fish in the murky sea of the intelligence world. But what is really interesting about Cabell is that his brother Earl Cabell would become the mayor of Dallas in 1961, 
once again, another connection to what was going on in Dallas in 1963. So that, you know, uh, there's, you know, the distinct possibility that he would have been involved in planning Kennedy's trip. Well, I mean, not distinct possibility. He would have been involved with planning Kennedy's trip to Dallas in 1963. So I don't know what that says, but it doesn't give me good feelings. And um, Jim Garrison the district attorney of the Orleans Parish in Louisiana, famous for his investigations into the Kennedy assassination, um, knowledge of which was popularized in the Oliver Stone film JFK. He would write in his book On the Trail of the Assassins, and perhaps I'll do my best Kevin Costner as Jim Carrison impression for you, my listeners, um, and what he would say of Charles Cabell. All right, so here goes nothing. Here's my best Jim Garrison. General Charles Cabell was the brother of Earl Cabell, former mayor of Dallas. Now, the 11th hour change in the president's motorcade route was even more intriguing to me, and I immediately headed for the public library. Before sunset, I had become the leading expert in New Orleans on General Charles Cabell, who it turned out had been fired as the CIA's number two man by President Kennedy. General Cabell had been in charge of the agency's disastrous Bay of Pigs invasion in the final hours while Castro's small air force was tearing the landing effort apart. Cabell had managed to get through a call to President Kennedy in an attempt to halt the disaster. Just over the rising by something less than happenstance, lay aircraft carriers with fighter planes on their decks, engines warming up. General Cabell informed the president that these fighters could reverse the course of disaster in minutes and secure the success of the invasion. All that was needed was the president's authorization. On the preceding day, Kennedy had assured the assembled media that if anyone invaded Cuba, and the air had become rife with invasion rumors, there certainly would be no help from the U.S. armed forces. He flatly turned Cabell down. With that invasion's chances sank, as did the general's intelligence career. President Kennedy asked for Cabell's resignation, and the general was subsequently replaced on February 1, 1962, as the CIA's deputy director. General Cabell's subsequent hatred of John Kennedy became an open secret in Washington. In most countries, a powerful individual who had been in open conflict with a national leader who was later assassinated would receive at least a modicum of attention in the course of a posthumous inquiry. A major espionage organization with a highly sophisticated capability for accomplishing murder might receive even more. Certainly a powerful individual who had also held a top position in a major espionage apparatus and had been at odds with the departed leader would be high on the list of suspects. However, General Gabble, who fit that description perfectly, was never even called as a witness before the Warren Commission. One reason may have been that Alan Dulles, the former CIA director, also fired by President Kennedy, was a member of the commission and handled all leads relating to the agency. During the nine years that Dallas Dulles had been the CIA's chief, General Charles Cabell had been his deputy. So anyways, probably not very good, but that was my best Jim Garrison, or rather Kevin Costner playing Jim Garrison because you know I haven't listened to Jim Garrison talk in a long time I think I watched uh, a YouTube clip on him going on some sort of night show or something like that but I, I, I can't even remember if that's true or if I'm just making it up if that's something I just saw in the movie 
But um, anyways, you know, so hopefully I'm not disrespecting um, the actual Jim Garrison. But anyways, when Cavill arrived in Madrid, he would meet with the CIA station chief, Al Rodriguez, about the use of Major Beak and bringing Scorzini in on an operation to find Nazi scientists who specialized in rocketry and missile development yeah so we are talking about operation paperclip of the werner von braun variety um so initially paperclip went under the name overcast and it was being ran by the oss but the joint intelligence objectives agency or the jioa would be set up to facilitate this operation and george cabell would be a central official in this new agency so when cabell departed from madrid two men al rodriguez and ed barber um, they'd be tasked with getting scorzini to help in locating uh, nazi ballistic scientist heinrich klein and gunther voss and so beak would meet with scorzini um, you know, they'd have some cocktails and he would eventually enlist Scorzini into this operation and would tell Scorzini that he was doing this at the request of the U.S. Air Force, which, as you guys will remember, there was uh, the OPC went under the control of the Air Force the office, went in there for a while and stuff. So, I mean, you can see how all these, you know, um, people could maybe be wired into the um, contact with Scorzini, but. Why these were why were these ballistic specialists needed? Well, remember men just uh, the man that I just mentioned, Werner von Braun. Well, he needed help with his missile program at Fort Bliss, Texas. And man, what's more American than you know a Nazi paperclip scientist in Texas? Uh, maybe apple pie, maybe baseball, maybe nothing. I don't know. That's a question I'll let up, uh, leave up to you guys to answer for yourselves. But as you guys could probably guess, Scorzini agreed to help the men out. And so Scorzini and Beak would soon be chilling again. Uh, this time they'd each be accompanied by the old ball and chain in Bavaria. And so while uh, Beak was there with Scorzini... Um, you know, Scorzini was supposedly supposedly vacationing, but Beak began to notice around 25 or so different dudes who walked up to Scorzini. They would salute him and state their former Nazi rank. Uh, so given the fact that at this time, Frank Weisner's Office of Policy Coordination was working on creating a group of Austrian guerrilla fighters to prevent the Soviets from uh, moving into the Alpine Fortress, this Alpine area of Bavaria, um, which also included some of the French, you know, were working on this, uh, you know, project. So it really seemed like the whole uh, Scorzini Western Intelligence Squad was doing what they loved most, which was trying to thwart the communists. So, you know, you have all these French ex-Nazi and CIA guys over in Bavaria while Scorzini is there supposedly on vacation. So uh, Beek was... Uh, probably wonder if Scorzini was actually on vacation, which I would say that he probably was not. So when they returned to Madrid, Scorzini had located the ballistic scientists and Beak would arrange for the Nazis to fly to America, head over on to Texas, help out old Werner von Braun. So it wouldn't necessarily be false if someone said that Scorzini helped the U.S. get to the moon. That is saying it wouldn't necessarily be false if you believe that we even went to the moon, which, you know what? I am a, I'm not sold. Um, so, anyways, uh, 
you know, I, I'm not sold that, that we went to the, to the moon. Um, but you know, so, uh, don't tell Neil and Buzz that, uh, that, that they're my, uh, that that's my opinion, especially Buzz Aldrin. Cause isn't he the one when there's that video of the, of the moon landing, uh, denier, I don't know what the proper term is. Um, the guy who thinks the moon landing was a hoax walks up to Buzz Aldrin and is basically accusing him of being a liar and Buzz Aldrin punches him in the face. Um, but anyways, I guess, uh, you know, all the Neil deGrasse Reddit bros, um, they owe a big thanks to the former Nazi commando and, um, all of you who think that space is fake, well, continue listening on unperturbed. Let your conscience be at ease because you don't have to owe a debt of gratitude to Otto Skorzeny. So I'm going to stay agnostic, leaning towards that the initial Apollo mission was a hoax. I'm not uh, quiet into uh, the whole, you know, space is fake that we live underneath the firmament quiet yet. But hey, my mind is always open. Um, But I feel like before I became a... Uh, moon landing was like all the moon landings were faked and we've never been to space and that space isn't even real I feel like before I went to uh, that kind of route I feel like that I would uh, deny heliocentrism first I think that instead of being like that the uh, you know that the sun is at the center of things and that things revolve around the sun. Um, I think I would go geocentric. I think that that, uh, that that would be quite the fun route to go. So anyways, maybe just to piss off the Reddit bros, um, maybe I'll just go that route. Maybe I'm going to be geocentric. Um, yeah, so that that's what I'm going to go with. We are um, at the center of the universe, and everything revolves around us. That is now the official things observed stance on the cosmological model to all follow. So hopefully you guys can dig it, because by decree of the, um, the head of things observed... Um, that that's it now you know i don't want any uh galileos or copernicuses or anybody like that coming along and floating out some new idea because we're gonna have some issues if that's the case um let's go back to things that actually matter <laughs> like scorzini going to egypt and that is gonna um give us way to something that we might be able to cover in this episode. Perhaps we'll start off the next episode with it, but this is going to kind of set the stage for the work that Skorzeny would later do for the Mossad. Yes, that's right. A Nazi working for the Mossad. Skorzeny, the secret Zionist. <laughs> but we'll, we'll get to that in a second. That was kind of a loud laugh. Hopefully I didn't make the... Uh, microphone clip when I did that but anyway so in 1951 Alan Dulles would send the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt Kermit Roosevelt which is pretty funny to think of him as a puppet frog um traveling uh, to Egypt 
um, and along with him would tag along this guy named Miles Copeland Jr. And Copeland just so happened to have coordinated intelligence matters in relation to Scorzini just after his release in 1948. So I'll uh, refer real quick to just kind of give a brief overview of what happens to a book titled The Nazi Hydra in America by Glenn Yeadon and John Hawkins, which I used as a resource in one of my previous episodes. There's a few little tasty tidbits about Scorzini in there, but there's also a lot of other good information. haven't read it in total, but I've read portions of it, and uh, maybe I'll have to take the time to sit down and read it in full. But anyways, it says, The next example is one that didn't go as planned for the CIA. The operation began as early as 1951 in Egypt with Kermit Roosevelt opening secret negotiations with Colonel Gamal Nasser as King Farouk's regime was about to crumble. The young Roosevelt reported back that they had found an agreement in several broad areas. Nasser asked for U.S. help in building up Egypt's intelligence and security forces. Dulles turned to Gellin for help in providing the security training for the Egyptians, and in 1953, former SS officer Otto Skorzeny and about 100 other German advisors were sent to Egypt. Among these security advisors was Ermann Lauterbacher, a former SS man, deputy leader of the Hitler Youth, and Franz Bunch, a propagandist of Goebbels and a veteran of the SS Jewish Affairs Office. So, yikes, um, Miles Copeland Jr. would actually admit that Scorzini was involved in the project in his book, The Game of Nations, and he would make sure to mention that Scorzini had been cleared of any war crimes, you know what I mean, he wasn't that bad of a Nazi, but uh, an interesting aside is that Copeland would actually get into intelligence initially by being introduced to William Donovan, the representative of uh, by the representative of Alabama, John Sparks, who was the one to get Werner von Braun's secret missile program moved from Texas to Huntsville. And uh, so Gannis speculates that perhaps he had a role in the involvement of Scorzini and helping get, you know, these paperclip guys moved around and uh, stuff like that, which, you know, Scorzini was helpful in that because he had an immense amount of Nazi connections and something that's just, you know, I already knew about way before getting into researching this, but it just constantly astounds me is just how intact all of these Nazis were, whether they be in Argentina or somewhere in Europe or, or wherever. I mean, this is like this, you know, kind of underground network of these Nazis, you know, and they can all just kind of seem to to find a, one another at the drop of a dime. So speaking of Scorzini, he and Nasser had worked alongside each other as well during World War II. So, I mean, perhaps it was, you know, known to intelligence circles that this was the case and that this was one of the reasons that they thought that Scorzini would be fit for the job. But as stated in the Nazi Hydra in America, uh, Egypt was trying to build up its security and they were trying to build up their intelligence forces. And in addition to this, Egypt was also attempting to modernize its forces and um, acquire technical know-how. And so, you know, these Germans would be helpful to that in them. And so Skorzeny would be approached about doing this work for Egypt by Hajimar Schacht, um, you know, we've already covered him, as well as General Charles Willoughby, which uh, General Charles Willoughby is someone who, um, you know, I've I've read enough books to where, you know, he's definitely been mentioned, but he just is someone who, like, in this past year, for some reason, he just keeps coming up and coming up and coming up. It seems like I can't read something 
ever since getting done with Gold Warriors by Donald and Peggy Seagrave. That does not mention Charles Willoughby. So he was definitely in the thick of all this uh, corrupt stuff that was going on. Um, But anyways, there would actually be newspaper accounts of Willoughby making a trip to Spain with unknown motives. But, you know, uh, according to Gannis, and it doesn't, you know, beg belief by any means, this would be to bring Scorzini into the fold as far as him helping out with the whole Egypt project. So while some accounts say that Scorzini would train Egyptian forces during this time in Egypt, which is certainly a plausibility. I mean, Scorzini was someone who would, you know, whether it was with these Compass Rose guys or whether it was, you know, and and we'll get more, more into this, but, you know, he was definitely in the field of training up people um, for, you know, Western intelligence, these people who they outsource certain work to and, you know, share his commando and espionage and, you know, sabotage techniques with all of these people. Um, so, you know, while some accounts say that Scorzini would train Egyptians forces during this time, it is certain plausible that he would spend, and, you know, and it's plausible. I mean, he spent a decent amount of time in Egypt and was known to have been in Cairo, you know, for months. But there's also another more documented reason for Scorzini's time spent in the Middle East. And he would, and, you know, this is because he was going around and helping recruit all these German scientists to work on modernizing Nasser's Egypt and, you know, helping out with their, uh, with their ballistics programs and, and stuff like that. So, anyways, we have already discussed James Angleton a tad in this series, both mentioning how he um, previously tied in the Scorzini case, uh, into the Scorzini cast of characters, as well as his strange behavior regarding the diary of Mary Pinochet Mayer, which we will you know, probably come back to when we get to the Kennedy assassination portion of the series, or I guess that'll be a separate series, but y'all catch my drift. Uh, but while we get into Angle into the Angleton connection in just a second, it's probably worth mentioning that there is some reason to believe that Scorzini had worked for yet another colorful character, the uh, rotund FBI maniac Bill Harvey, who some researchers believe to have played a role in the assassination of who else but JFK. So, and we mentioned Bill Harvey earlier um, in the series, but Harvey was born to a lawyer and he would himself get a degree in law from Indiana University Law School. And then he'd go on to start a one-man law practice before finding himself some good old not-so-honest work at the FBI. And so after disappointing everyone's favorite cross-dressing FBI director, um, the who's blackmailed by the mob and, you know, was probably, um, you know, if you've read Run Nation and under blackmail and stuff, you know, probably in a scene where there was some pretty unsavory stuff going on, um, J. Hedegar Hoover, he would uh, resign and he would take his next post at maybe the only institution on earth less noble than the FBI, the CIA. And when I was reading about Harvey on the fantastic resource uh, Spartacus Educational, which is kind of like a, uh, a Wikipedia almost for parapolitical uh, reasons, um, you know, um, 
but I stumbled upon this quote from Richard Mahoney, which I found to be humorous, where he says, William K. Harvey, a squat, balding tank of a man with eyes that bulge because of a thyroid condition, began assembling a squad of assassins recruited from the ranks of organized crime in Europe. And uh, Harvey would also do some other work for Frank Wisner. Um, and he would also, as Spartacus Educational would um, lay out, spy on the Soviets and I'll just read from the Spartacus Educational real quick. Harvey was sent to West Germany where he worked with Ted Shackley at the CIA Berlin Station. In 1955, he was the commander of Operation Gold, which succeeded in tapping Soviet phone lines via a 500-yard tunnel into East Berlin. Until it was detected a year later, the tap gave the CIA information about the military plans of the Soviet Union. It was only later that it was discovered that George Blake, a MI6 agent in Berlin, had told the KGB about the tunnel when it was first built. Um, so, you know, this is something that Harvey was going on, doing all this work in West Germany and whatever. And Harvey would also be involved in helping overthrow foreign leaders but anyways, I mean, so Harvey was, you know, just a, a typical corrupt CIA stooge. But um, in regards to the JFK stuff, it's not like he was a virgin in the field of coups. You know, Harvey would also be involved with Operation Mongoose and attempts to overthrow Castro, which Harvey was actually um, one of the people to set up the meaning between the CIA's Jim O'Connell and gangsters Sam Giacana, Santos Traficante, and Robert Mayhew. And the uh, Spartacus entry quotes the book Sons and Brothers by Richard Mahoney, which describes the meaning. And if I remember properly, I think I maybe read this same quote, and perhaps it was the Lansdale episode, because I know that we talked a little bit about Operation Mongoose and that. But then again, it could have been in the series where I kind of dive into the whole Ed Haslam, Dr. Mary's Monkey uh, theory when it comes to the CIA and what some of... Uh, you know, whether we can trust Judith Ferry Baker and what she has to say about the assassination and, and stuff like that. I'm, I'm unsure, but anyways, um, I'll just go ahead and read from Sons and Brothers. Late one evening, probably March 15th, 13th, Rosalie passed the poison pills and the money to a small reddish-haired Afro-Cuban by the name of Rafael Macho Ginner in the Boom Boom Room, a location Giacana thought stupid. Rosalie's purpose, however, was not just to assassinate Castro, but to set up the mafia's partner in crime, the United States government. Accordingly, he was laying a long, bright trail of evidence that unmistakably implicated the CIA in the Castro plot. This evidence, whose purpose was blackmail, would prove critical in the CIA's cover-up of the Kennedy assassination. Which, um, you know, uh, I don't know, I haven't read Sons and Brothers and stuff, so I can't, co you know, comment on full in the, on uh, this guy's theory. But, uh, you know, while I think that certain, you know, elements of the mob may have possibly been involved with this assassination of JFK, I think that all the evidence pretty clearly points to it being a mainly CIA job. But um, anyways, after the Cuban operations of the CIA were nixed by Kennedy, Harvey would become the CIA station chief of Rome, where he would, uh, he saw this as a serious demotion and he blamed Bobby Kennedy for this slight, and he would hate him with all of his big fat guts. <laughs> and so he would continue to keep 
contact with Johnny Rosley. Um, but anyways, let's get into how he relates to Scorzini. So if you've listened to the rest of this series, you maybe remember the meeting that took place between some CIA guys and the French intelligence asset Roger Wybo and Pierre Buteau, who had been harboring Scorzini. They were enmeshed in the whole Compass Rose scene, which we've talked about in relative detail. And, you know, Scorzini was a fixture of this scene. But anyways... Um, you know, uh, Pear, which his colleagues like to uh, call Harvey because of his, you know, awkward body, was sitting in on this meeting, and perhaps he even joined in on the discussion with what people um, who knew Harvey described as uh, his frog-like voice. But when Harvey was working for Wisner, he would be sent to Berlin, where he used prostitutes as some of his operator operatives, and he would be involved in the just previously mentioned Operation Gold. And so another project of this would be DT Linen, which was previously called a graveyard because it sounds uh, cooler and less annoying. That's what I'm going to refer to it as, is graveyard. So this was a psychological warfare sub-project under the umbrella of another project known as QK Demon. And and so, however, you know, sabotage was an objective of graveyard, graveyard, and this was by covert and overt means. But the CIA was using this uh, West German group in this operation called the Fighting League Against Humanity, um, but um, which is the English translation of its German name. But anyways, it went by the acronym KGU. And a declassified CIA memo would say Scorzini was involved with the preparations for the establishment of sabotage and resistance groups, presumably with the KGU. And so this same memo would also say the engineering office that Scorzini opened in Madrid was in obvious cover, as if we needed to be told that. But Gannis would write... The information in the memo came from a source being utilized by the Gellin organization, while it is true that Gellin knew of Scorzini's use by the CIA. Only a handful of others on his staff also knew. The authenticity of the report is confirmed, however, by two pieces of evidence. First, the name Colonel Thompson was an alias used by CIC agent Severin Wallach, and later Wallach would transfer to the CIA. Secondly, the author interviewed CIA officer Tom Polger, who was the project manager for D.T. Lennon. When shown the declassified documents revealing Scorzini's connection to the KGU, Polger stated, it cannot be ruled out that a lower-level U.S. official was in contact with Scorzini, and he added, you have to read between the lines. The author took the answer to be in the affirmative and the lower-level official, Severin Wallach. In December 1952, William Harvey arrived in Berlin and took over management of OPC operations, including direction of the KJU and another group called the Investigative Committee of Free Jurists. Um, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce the German name, or the UFJ. And the KGU and the UFJ were Harvey's primary psychological warfare initiatives. And by 1952, Colonel Robert G. Story of Dallas, Texas, a former United States Air Force intelligence officer who had served with General Charles Cabell during the war, arrived in Europe to assist with the OPC free jurist efforts. It had previously been mentioned, but desires a second highlight. Story was a key attorney supporting the Warren Commission in the wake of the Kennedy assassination. General Cabell would become the deputy CIA director under Alan Dulles in 53, and Cabell was intimately familiar with the CIA's use of Scorzini prior to Colonel Story's arrival in Berlin. General Cabell's brother Earl would become mayor of Dallas, Texas in 1961 until 19. 19- 
64. And so another declassified document would report another source saying that Skorzeny had been in West Germany um, setting up resistance groups, which seems to be you know, further corroboration of Skorzeny's supposed activities. Anyhow, it's very probable that through this work, Skorzeny and Story would have developed a relationship with one another and that this could potentially be important to what would end up just transpiring with Kennedy. But if none of Skorzeny's connections seem uh, that deep to what transpires in Dallas, just give it a little time. I think that y'all might be surprised. But anyhow, I promised that we would talk about Angleton. So that's just exactly what we will do. And I don't think I need to tell most of my audience. Uh, but uh, you know what? I might just hold off on, on this. And uh, we might just get into this in the next episode. Because we've already reached an hour. And I really want to talk about this Israel uh part of the Scorzini saga for a moment. I think that it's something that you guys are gonna just eat right up and I don't wanna I don't wanna, you know, not go in for it for long enough. I really don't want to speed it up. And I've got some other things to do trying to get my garden all set up and I've been busy with a host of other stuff as far as work goes and whatnot and I've got some work to do. So anyways, I promise that we will talk about Israel and I will do my best to wrap up the Scorzini series. But anyways, if you like this episode, if you've been enjoying Things Observed, leave a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcast or whatever you're using if it gives you the ability to give it a rating. Send this to people who you think might enjoy this episode or send your favorite episode to someone who you might think enjoy it. Get the word out there. Let's grow people so that way we can have bigger and better guests come on and uh, I can just feel more justified in spending so much time in working on the podcast. But anyways, I love you all. I'm recording this on what is most people's Easter. Um, so if you're not Orthodox, uh, happy Easter. And if not, next week, have a good Pascha. But anyways, love all of y'all. I'll talk to all of you guys soon. Take care and I'll and, I, and I'll be here. I'm going to stick around. You're not getting rid of me quiet yet. You're going to have to try a little bit harder. Uh, the government's going to have to seed some ticks that have Lyme's disease. And even then, maybe I'll just be on the podcast and be extra sleepy and tired. Who's to say? But anyways, love you all. Talk to you all soon.